As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Father in heaven, um, again, amazing it is to us that we have this word that we can rely upon and, and uh, learn of you and know that which is true. So I pray that you would help us uh, focus our attention upon it uh, and bless us, God, as we listen to it read, as we think upon it. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Isaiah in chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, please. I want to read verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 9, please. Hear the word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I want, if God will help me, to draw our attention this morning to just this little expression concerning this child, this expression, wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. You know, remember the context of, 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 of Isaiah so that we can fit this expression into that and, and beyond, really. Because what I want to really do here is to think through um, what this word means, why it applies to this child, why it must apply to this child, and then, of course, why it really matters. So, so what does it really mean, this expression, wonderful counselor? And how is it applied to this child, and, and, and why then does it, does it really matter that he is wonderful counselor remember the context isaiah 8th century bc isaiah the prophet is prophesying is in judah ancient judah remember ancient israel northern kingdom southern kingdom judah southern kingdom Uh, king ahaz is in turmoil there are two nations that are coming against him with a third that could. Two nations against him, Israel and Syria, the northern kingdom, with whom they have all sorts of bitter rivalries, and this nation Syria, they come against him. This big nation of Assyria that's trampling over everyone at the time, and so, so that's kind of on his horizon, and he's thinking about that, and Isaiah comes to him, you remember, at this point of vulnerability, this place where, where, the, where the community is, 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 is at greatest 
danger, this place where the water flows into Jerusalem. And so there he is, and he's looking around that, and, he's, and, and, and Isaiah comes to him and says, Don't worry, Ahaz. These two nations, Israel and Syria, they won't overtake you. They'll be destroyed. They won't be successful. Don't worry about that. And, and, and he says to Isaiah, uh, God does. I want to give you a sign to convince you. I want to give you a sign to make sure that you trust me, that you believe me. And of course, Ahaz, rather self-righteously, says, I don't want that sign. And the reason he doesn't want a sign from God is that he really doesn't want to trust God. He's already made in his mind to trust and Assyria, this big nation, to, to, to join with them and have an alliance with Assyria so that... Uh, they, Assyria, will protect him. Now, he knows that he'll have to pay tribute to the Assyrians. He knows that he'll have to rob the temple in order to do that. And he knows that he'll have to side with them in the sense that he'll have to bring their gods into the worship of Judah. Uh, but, but, but that is where he is. That's his heart. He thinks that that will be his best plan, his best move, his best strategy that that will protect him that will keep him secure and you remember then that the prophet turns then from ahaz and gives a sign really to the whole nation and he says here's the sign a virgin will give birth to a son and she'll name him emmanuel which is god with us in other words this sign will mean that you'll know when this sign comes that god really is with us which is really what everyone needs it was difficult to know exactly how that played out in the, in, in the time of, of Isaiah. But you remember that, of course, there was a young woman some centuries later. A young woman who had not been with a man. A young woman who was betrothed to a man named Joseph. This woman named Mary. And, and the angel of the Lord came to her and said, The Holy Spirit will come to you and, and you will conceive a child. And of course, she's confused about that because she knows she hasn't been with a man. And, and he says, well, this will be a work of the Holy Spirit, not some sordid sexual intimacy between God and this woman, but, 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 but by the very work of the Spirit of God, the very power of God to make in her a child without a human father. And of course, bells and whistles go off because we realize that's the sign. That's it. This very one will be Emmanuel. That's how Matthew, as he writes his gospel, lays it out for us. Yes, this is the one. And you'll name him Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. He, he's the conquering king. He's the one who will indeed, indeed come this very sign. Well, we learn, you see, about this child. Because Isaiah continues to speak of him. That was Isaiah chapter 7. Now Isaiah chapter 9. And Isaiah is still speaking of this child who is, who is to come. We, we notice about him this child who is to be born. This son who is to be given. Uh, the government shall be upon his shoulder. That is to say that he'll rule and reign. He'll be a ruler. He'll have this government, this rule. His name will be called, you can see, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be uh, no end. It'll, it'll just keep going on. It'll go on forever, you see. Uh, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, the promise of God that there'll be one who'll rule on the throne of David forever and ever. This very one is to come. With justice and with righteousness from this time forth, and forevermore, it says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That is to say, it really is going to happen. Now these names that were laid out, this Prince of Peace, he'll bring peace. 
He'll be the everlasting father in the sense that he'll rule and reign as a father rules and reigns. He'll be the mighty God. He'll also be this wonderful counselor. Now, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that he'll be the best psychotherapist we could ever imagine, right? Now, now he will be, he will, in, in a sense, I suppose, but, but that's not the point really here. This, this, this word counselor means this one who, of course, gives good counsel. And the reason he gives good counsel is because he's wise. In fact, his wisdom leads him then to make and execute perfect plans. So it means in Scripture to be this one who is the counselor. The one who gives counsel is the one who is able to make plans and execute plans that are the wisest and the best. You see, wisdom isn't simply just having information. It isn't just having knowledge. Wisdom means that you're able to know the best end and the best means to get to that end. That's a wise person. When you, when you want a wise person, you're not simply looking for someone who knows a whole lot about everything. Even a whole lot about your situation. Well, what, what, what you want is a person who, yes, has all this knowledge about this, but a person who's able to take that information that he has and wisely organize it in such a way that he's able to make a plan. And that plan is able to get you to the best place in the best way. That's wisdom. And this one who is the wonderful counselor, this counselor means he has that kind of wisdom. He's, he's, he's that wise. But we see, you put this little adjective, at least as it is in English, in Hebrew, it's not really an adjective. It's really just an abstract noun, as it's called. But, 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 but we translate it, and rightly so, as an adjective to, 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 to modify this word counselor. He's a wonderful counselor. Now, I, I looked up, Wonderful in the dictionary, actually, because I'm so incredibly cool. I took my phone and I said to my phone, What does wonderful mean? And she told me. It's pretty amazing. Actually, it was a website that we went to, but, but there it was. I just, it's pretty freaky. Anyway, that's knowledge, by the way, not wisdom. Uh, Although I did ask my phone, what was the chief end of man? <laughs> and she gave me the website for the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which was a good, a, a good response there. But, but my phone said that this word wonderful means extraordinarily good or great. And yes, that's, that's sort of getting at this sense of wonderful counselor. The, the plan is extraordinary. That is... It's beyond ordinary. So he's wonderful at this. He's better than anybody else, we could say. A wonderful counsel, extraordinarily good and great. But, but really in Scripture, this particular word that's translated as wonderful, really literally his name would be Wonder Counselor. Sounds a little superhero-ish. Wonder Counselor. But, but that one whose counsel is unfathomable. It makes us wonder. That is, we sit in awe and wonder. It's the word used of all of the great wisdom and the great acts. 
acts of God. As we read through the Old Testament, especially the Psalms, it speaks of us declaring the wonders of God. And in those contexts, it's almost always the wonders of God. You remember the Red Sea? Who could ever do that? That act was unfathomable. In fact, that plan was unfathomable by us. Who could imagine anyone taking this group of Hebrew slaves and delivering them from these powerful Egyptians? How could that ever, how could any plan ever do that? Especially this plan where he takes this guy Moses, who was in trouble with the Egyptians anyway, and who had to run away. Take this man Moses, who stuttered and didn't even want to be this person. He just really liked being a farmer shepherd. Take this one Moses and take him back to Egypt. And this Moses stand before Pharaoh and say, let the people of God go. Then he hoped that he would. That plan was unfathomable. No one would have thought of that. There weren't any memos going from the Egyptian slaves to Moses saying, please come back and release us. Moses wasn't applying for that job. He didn't think it through. Nobody would have thought of that. But it worked. It was a wonder plan. It was wonderful counsel. No one would have thought of that, you see. So what Isaiah is saying is this planner, this one who knows the real purpose, this one who's going to lay all this out and execute it, it's extraordinary. It's unfathomable. It's incomprehensible to us. He's the wonder counselor. Now you see, it have to be because you see what he's going to do is bring peace on the earth. No one had ever seen peace on the earth. No one could ever imagine real peace. I know there's all sorts of bumper stickers and all of that sort of thing about peace on the earth and all that. But really, really? After all these centuries of hostilities, the macro level, there's hostilities of nation against nation at the micro level. We know the hostilities that people have with each other, even in the best case situations, even in families, even in churches, in neighborhoods and businesses. We know that. It's always been. None of us really expects to wake up tomorrow and see a headline that says peace on earth. just simply hasn't been. Who can have a plan that will actually make that happen? Because you see, really, and ultimately, and this we get from the scripture, of course, really, ultimately, the problem that humanity has, which leads to the hostilities that we experience, that we enter into and we propagate, the, the, the real problem is our relationship with God, that we don't glorify Him as we are. We were made to glorify Him. We were made to reflect Him, but we don't. We've, re, we've rebelled against Him. And so rather than to submit to God as God, and thus everything in the universe then being ordered rightly, we rebel against God and we put ourselves in the position of being God. That was the whole deal in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? That was the temptation. You can be like God. And Adam said, oh, yes, of course. God said, don't do this. We will. We should know good and evil. We should be the ones to define good and evil. That's really a God thing. He's the one that says what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. We say, no, 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 we can can do that. Why should we trust him with that? We can do that. It's good for me to eat of this tree. 
You see, then we turned away from God, and each one of us then becoming our own little gods, right? Our own little universes, our own little kingdoms. And, and so what that means is if anybody infringes upon my kingdom, then I have to be at war with them. Anyone comes against me, I do. And so you see the hostility that develops, whatever that is. And the insecurity then, oh, if, 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 you're going to take my stuff, you're going to take my reputation, you're going to take my place, I can't let you do that. And so we see the hostilities that develop. Macro-level nations, micro-level personal relationships. Who is going to be able to have a plan that's going to be able to solve that one? We've tried human beings have in various kinds of ways, various governmental schemes, various kinds of family schemes, various kinds of relational schemes, and still we find ourselves in this hostility after all these centuries of human experience. How is it that peace can come to the earth? How is it that peace can come between individuals? And here's this one going to come. And if the real problem is, of course, this relationship with God, who's going to bring peace there? Because there's a huge dilemma here unsolvable to us and it's really the impact of sin in our lives you see sin brings a condition in the human heart that the bible calls darkness that is that i can't see and don't want to it's a sense of ignorance but but it's blameworthy ignorance in the sense that i simply don't want to there's something in me, a condition in me that says, I don't want to follow after God. And the Bible calls that darkness. I can't see my way clear. I can't see my way out. And I really don't want to get out. And so you see, I'm in the grip, the enslavement, in the grip of this sin condition. So I really don't want to be reconciled to God. The scripture puts it like this, that men love darkness rather than light. We're just there. That's where we live. We like it. Ahaz. You see, we read the story of Ahaz, and, and, and we think, what a fool. And there's a sense in which that's true. But, 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 but really, it's really us, isn't it, this Ahaz person? God was saying, listen, trust me. I'm God. I'm your covenant God. Think back through the history of me with your people, how they're protected and provided. Trust me. And Ahaz, in darkness, says, no, I'd rather trust the Assyrians. Now, of course, what we know is that God's word was true, that the Israelites and the Syrians were destroyed. But it's the Assyrians with whom Ahaz made that alliance. It was the Assyrians that became his nemesis, his problem, because he made an alliance with evil. And if you do that, evil will always overtake you. So we think he's a fool, but, but he's just like us. That's this darkness notion. It was that old spin of the... Jeremiah chapter 5, really, there is none so blind as those who will not see. See, That's the situation you see in darkness. That darkness is to be overcome, but we live in it. How can that be overcome? That's our problem, you see. And then there's the other problem, of course, which is, I would say, comes from God's perspective, God's end of this, and that is that he is holy and just. And if we've rebelled against him, if he's going to be moral, if he's going to be just, then he needs to deal with that. He just can't cover it up. He can't cover up injustice. As he puts it in the Old Testament, he cannot acquit the guilty. That would be unjust. So if I'm guilty, and God can't acquit the guilty, how am I going to get out of this? What plan can exist? 
And so there are good days when I think, well, I'll just do better. <laughs> How much better is better? And then, of course, I don't do better. And then there are days when I say, well, why can't God simply forgive? I mean, come on, God. Can't you just do that? He says, I'm holy. How can I just say that the guilty isn't? Who can have a plan? See, this one, then, is the wonder counselor. He's the wonder plan. He's, he's the unfathomable, wise one, you see. And that, of course, is indeed the very nature of this one, the very nature of God. Notice in what we read this morning in our responsive reading from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, speaks of this one who will come forth from the stump of Jesse, Jesse, David's father. So come forth from this, this house of David, verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel, that is wisdom planning, and might, spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord, and he shall delight, he shall, he shall, um, and, he, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, this, this very, this very one. He's going to have the very wisdom of God, and of God's wisdom, the scripture says, his wisdom is unsearchable. Isaiah would speak of this, of this very often, for instance, he would say um, of, of, of this, this one who was to come in Isaiah in chapter 40 and verse 28. He says, have you not known, have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He doesn't grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And then in chapter 46 and verse 5 of God we read this, to whom will you liken me and make me your equal and compare me that we may be alike? And then verse 9, remember the former things of old for I'm God and there is no other. I'm God, there's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. That's the wisdom of God. This very one who's to come is going to have that Wisdom. And then, of course, the passage in Isaiah, in chapter 55, verse 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high, for, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. Stand outside, we look up at the clouds. They're really distant from us. God's wisdom is that distant from ours. That's the size of it. And then he says, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and don't return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be, be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. And the very plan of God, the very word of God, will accomplish his purpose. It's the best and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And here's the thing for which God sends his word. Don't ever miss this. I use this as a call to worship often. And I'm always afraid that we'll miss this. That we'll miss the purpose for which God's word comes. It's the same purpose that will have that was described in Isaiah chapter 9 
for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. That's the reason for the coming of this child. That's the purpose of the word of God that his people will know a day when we'll go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and the trees and the fields shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorns shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briars shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. He says, listen, people, in the days of Isaiah, listen to us even in the days in which we live. A day will come when we will go out in joy. The way that Isaiah lays that out in Isaiah chapter 9 is it'll be like the joy that we have when the harvest comes, like when everything is here. It'll be like the joy when, when the battle's over and we've won and we receive all the bounty from the battle. And you see, the peace will be so great, he says, that be the, only, the only need for a warrior's boot, the only need for a soldier's garment is to be used to burn his fuel so we can stay warm. You see, the only use of those things because there'll be real lasting peace so lasting that, that, that we can break our swords into plowshares because we know we'll never need them again we just simply won't it isn't foolishness to do that at that point in time metaphorically speaking at that point in time there's no use of them so 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 it's exactly the thing to do with them a plan like that well this one who's going to come he says trust me he's the wonder counselor do you remember there was a day when Jesus was 12 years old his parents had been with the other people in the community to Jerusalem for celebration of the Passover. They're going back to Nazareth, traveling in a group as, as we might do, carpools we would do, or perhaps various buses. And they were all friends, and Jesus was 12. And so you can imagine that, that they'd say, uh, Mary would say to Joseph, where's Jesus? And Joseph would say, he's with his buddies. They're fine. They're in that group over there in van number three or whatever it happens to be, however they're traveling, uh, you know, behind the second camel to the left. But, but they're over there somewhere. They're fine. So they get home and they realize, oh my goodness, Jesus isn't here. Where could he be? So they go back to Jerusalem and they find Jesus in the temple. And you remember what was happening. He was schooling all the priests. Why? Because at 12, there was something about his wisdom. Bells and whistles, wonder counselor, this 12-year-old boy. You remember too that when Jesus would begin to teach people would say i've never heard anybody teach like this i've never heard this kind of wisdom he would speak on the kingdom of god and they would be amazed and astonished in fact even even some of the officers that were sent to arrest him at a particular point in time didn't arrest him came back and and told their leaders that they didn't arrest him because they've never heard anybody speak like this the wonder counselor and even jesus of himself you see said i'm the truth he didn't simply say i have the truth he didn't just simply say, I know some truth. He didn't simply say, I teach the truth. Well, that would be true, but, but, but he said, I am it. That is, look at me, I'm true. I'm reliable. I'm the very wisdom of God. I am that which I purpose, that which I do, that which I say, that which I am. I am it. I'm the wisdom. You want the wisdom of God? Take me. 
In fact, you remember how the apostle put it in Colossians in chapter 3. He writes this of Jesus. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in fact, as Paul wrote to the church in, in Corinth, he would say to them this very thing. For instance, 1 Corinthians in chapter 1 and verse 18, he said, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. I'll, I'll, I'll destroy, it is written, the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You see, this really works. This is really it. There need not be any other wonder counsel. There need not be any other plan. Why? Because this one is right and true. And what other wisdom, what other plan could accomplish reconciliation with God? All of our own thoughts in comparison are foolishness. They simply are. They often boil down to I can do better or God doesn't exist. What are our other ways? But this is the unfathomable plan, the plan that we could never come up with, that we could never think of, that we could never, never execute. And so he says this in verse 30, because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, this way, this plan, this is, this is it, this very wisdom of God. He rules and reigns. And the reason this matters, of course, is we have to ask ourselves the question, do we really trust him? Do we really trust him? Do we really trust his plan? Do we really trust that he's the wonderful counselor, that, that how he does things, that his wisdom from his rule is really the best means to get to the best ends? I was reading with my covenant group this week, this incident in the life of Jesus, you remember it. He was with his disciples, and, they, and he said to them, let's go across the Sea of Galilee. And so they got in the boat with Jesus, and uh, Jesus fell asleep. And you remember what happened in the midst of that incident. A great storm came up, a great storm, such a great storm that fishermen were afraid. Now, fishermen lived on the sea, and they were afraid in the midst of this. They believed they were going to perish. That is to say, they believed that they were going to die. And all the while, Jesus stayed asleep. So here they were afraid, and Jesus was sleeping. You remember how it goes. I suspect they wake Jesus up, and they shake him and say, don't you care about us? And, and Jesus, you know, I suspect, looked at them and got up, got the sleep out of his eyes, and looked at the storm and said, stop. And it did. 
Now, the amazing thing there, of course, was that the storm stopped. But storms like waves, I mean, excuse me, wind and rain, can stop fairly quickly. But, but it stopped immediately. What was even more amazing is that the scripture says that the wind and waves, you see, waves on the sea after a storm kick up sometimes for another 24 hours. But everything became still. I don't know if you can feel that. It would have to be the freakiest feeling. Because this storm was like a hurricane, I think we would say. The storm was that bad that these fishermen thought they were going to die. And all of a sudden, it was as calm as calm could be. Fascinatingly, Jesus was shocked at their uh, behavior. He was shocked at their fear. He says, why are you afraid? Now, I'm surprised Peter, because maybe he wasn't in the boat. I don't know who exactly was in the boat with him. But if Peter was in the boat, I'm surprised he didn't say, huh? You didn't see the storm, did you? I mean, that's why we're afraid. But you got the notion of Jesus. He was saying, but I was here with you. Don't you trust me? This was my idea to come along from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And he had laid that out for him. It had gone something like this. Point A, we're going to get in the boat. Point B, we're going to cross the sea. Point C, there's going to be a big storm that comes up and you're going to think you're going to die. Point D, we land safely on the other side. And they would say, we get A, B, and C. We don't know how we get from C to D. We have no plan. We can't figure that one out. Best we're going to do is die. And Jesus said, but I'm the wonder counselor. I figured it out. He didn't say that, but that's how I would impute into this. Didn't you trust me? I I can plan. I know the best means to the best end, and this was the best means to the best end. I'll get us there. Won't you trust me? Commenting on this passage, Tim Keller writes this. He says, before Jesus comes the storm, they were afraid, but after Jesus comes the storm... They're terrified. Isn't that amazing, right? They're terrified. They're terrified. Why? Because now, something stronger than the storm is in their face, and it's Jesus. Before Jesus was awakened, Mark says the boat was nearly swamped, almost full. The disciples couldn't bail fast enough. They knew the boat was just seconds from being totally filled, and they'd die. They woke Jesus and said, don't you care if we drown? picture goes to our hearts because everyone who's tried to live a life of faith in this world has felt like this sometimes everything's going wrong you're sinking god seems to be asleep absent unaware if you loved us the disciples were saying you wouldn't let us go through this if you loved us we wouldn't be about to sink if you loved us you wouldn't be letting us endure deadly peril jesus calmed the storm and he responded to them did he say i understand how you felt no he asked why are you so afraid you imagine what the disciples have been thinking. What do you mean we, why we're afraid? We're afraid we're going to drown. We're afraid you didn't love us because if you loved us, you wouldn't let these things happen to us. But Jesus' question to them has this thought behind it. Your premise is wrong. You should have known better. I do allow people I love to go through storms. You had no reason to panic. He's ruling and reigning says, you have to understand me. The best means to get to the other end, the best means to show the glory of the Father, 
is to go through these storms I have planned. Why were they more terrified in the calm than they were in the storm? Well, because Jesus was as unmanageable as the storm itself. The storm had immense power. They couldn't control it. Jesus had infinitely more power, so they had even less control over him. But there is a huge difference. A storm doesn't love you. Nature is going to wear you down, destroy you. If you live a long time, eventually your body will give out and you'll die. Maybe it'll happen sooner through an earthquake, a fire, or some other disaster. Nature's violent and overwhelming. It's unmanageable power, and it's going to get you sooner or later. You may, have to, you, have, you may say that's true, but if I go to Jesus, he's not under my control either. He lets things happen that I don't understand. He doesn't do things according to my plan or in a way that makes sense to me. But if Jesus is God, then he's got to be great enough to have some reasons to let you go through things you don't understand. His power is unbounded. But so are his wisdom and his love. Nature is indifferent to you. But Jesus is filled with untamable love for you. If the disciples had really known that Jesus loved them, if they'd really understood that he is both powerful and loving, they would not have been scared. Their premise, that if Jesus loved them, he wouldn't let bad things happen to them, was wrong. He can love somebody. And still let bad things happen to them. Because he's God. Because he knows better than they do. If you have a God great enough and powerful enough to be mad at because he doesn't stop your suffering. You also have a God who's great enough and powerful enough to have reasons that you can't understand. This is utterly irrational for us to... To trust this one and to say, oh yes, his, his plans are good. His, 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 his rule is great. It's extraordinary. We wonder at it. And the answer is he's given us sufficient reason to trust him. Even in the times when we don't understand. He's given us sufficient reason to trust that he is the one ruling and reigning. This one ruling and reigning is the wonderful counselor his plans are unfathomable and they're great because you see he did solve that dilemma in an amazing way he said I'll take your guilt I have no guilt in myself but I'll take your guilt and as I take your guilt you see then my father can exercise his justice and express his love. And you can be reconciled to God through me. None of us could have thought up that plan because none of us could have executed that plan. Because none of us is the righteousness of God. So it was that night that Jesus was betrayed, that his wonderful plan was unveiled. He took bread, he broke it. He gave it to them and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this cup to his disciples and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many 
for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And as we do this, we remember that his plan, his counsel, his purpose, that which is put into play that he executes is wonderful, unfathomable to us, but true. And he says, all right, what I want you to do is never forget this. So that when you're going through the time when the storm has hit and the boat is filling and you think you're going to perish and you think, I don't care, think about this. And when you're going through that moment and you think, this is crazy. The plan of the one ruling and reigning is horrible. Remember this. It should humble you. Who would have thought of this? This is true, you see. It reconciles us to God. He says, all right. Trust me. To wonder how the Israelites did it over time. Abraham, trust me. It was a long time ago. And Abraham on the day, finally, when his wife had given birth to a child, finally, when, when, when the covenant child existed, Isaac, God says, I want you to sacrifice him. That doesn't sound right. But of course, Isaac wasn't killed because God said, no, 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 your son. Your son can't do this. No one son can do this. There's none among you righteous enough to do this. Even the covenant child, Isaac, it'll be my son, I'll provide. Uh, Let me give you a token, this ram, kill it. Uh, we'll, we'll begin a series over the years and centuries of animals dying for you. Trust me. Trust me. And then that day, when that virgin gave birth, and the angels shouted, Glory to God. His wisdom is here. It's unfathomable. Who ever thought of this? He came as a baby. And here he is. And he's going to take upon himself the guilt of sinners. So that we can be reconciled to God. Everyone would have had to say, wow. Never would have thought of that. Because it's just outside of who we are. Because we never could have executed it. Because none of us is the righteousness of God. None of us is the wisdom of God. None of us is the truth. Just as I want you to do, a day will come when peace will reign It isn't here in its fullness. So the way that you have joy now, the way that you have peace now, the prophet Isaiah says, I will give him perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon me. The wisdom of God. It's coming. Let's pray. Father in heaven, enable us, I pray believe that, to trust that in the midst of difficulties in life that we've experienced but still don't understand perhaps, that we might be living through at the moment that we anticipate coming because we know life. So enable us to trust, to grab hold of Jesus, that he ruling and reigning has come, of course, as this child from this virgin the sign that you're with us. 
has ascended and rules and reigns even now over all that he accomplished. And in the ruling and reigning, we realize we still have a ways to go. So we pray that you would enable us to trust you, Jesus. I pray that as we come to this table, that we'll know that you are Emmanuel, God with us. We know that you are with us even as you were with the disciples in that boat that day. Even though there are times when it seems like you're asleep, we know that you care for us. And we know that because we see what you have done. Enable us to stay our minds upon you. So take this bread and this juice, God, I pray, and set it apart in such a way that through it we would see Jesus and we would know his very presence, that he's as close to us as this bread and this juice is, that he's here among us for he has come and that you would give us joy and that you would give us peace even as we think upon him and this I pray in Jesus name amen I remind you this table is not the table of grace evangelical Presbyterian church it's the table of the Lord he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners. And this desire, you see, to live with him, to walk with him, to trust him, to live as one who is indeed a follower of Jesus. That be true for you. I invite you to come, these two sections, down the aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it into the cup. And as you do, remind yourself, this one who rules and reigns is the wonderful counselor. Please come.